Dotnet Rocks episode 847 with guest Brian Noyes. Recorded live Tuesday, February 12th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. What's up, my friend? I am, um, you know, living the dream. What can I tell you? Living what to complain dream. about? Well, um, I don't really have any small talk today, and my uh, Better Know framework's pretty freaking awesome, so let's just jump into it. Just big talk from Mr. Franklin today. That's it. All right, what do you got? We shall not waste your time. Anyway, uh, today I found a, a project, an open source cross-platform project called Simple Direct Media Layer. Huh. LibSDL.org. Simple Direct Media Layer is a cross-platform multimedia library designed to provide low-level access to audio, keyboard, mouse, joystick, 3D hardware via OpenGL, and 2D video frame buffer. Nice. It is used by MPEG playback software, emulators, and many popular games, including the award-winning Linux port of Civilization Call to Power. Get this. SDL supports Linux, Windows, Windows CE, BEOS, Mac OS, Mac OS X, FreeBSD, NetBSD, OpenBSD, BSDOS, Solaris, IREX, and QNX. QNX. The code contains support for Amiga OS, Dreamcast, Atari, AIX, OSF, True64, Risk OS, Simeon OS, and OS2, but these are not officially supported. SDL is written in C, but it works with C++ natively and has bindings to several other languages, including Ada, C Sharp, D, D, Eiffel, Erlang, Euphoria, Go, Guile, Haskell, Java, Lisp, Lua, ML, Oberon, Component, Pascal, Objective-C, Pascal, Perl, PHP, Pyke, Pliant, Python, Ruby, Smalltalk, and TCL. SDL is distributed under a new GPL version 2. This license allows you to use SDL freely in commercial programs as long as you link with the dynamic library. Huh. Wow, that's everything, isn't it? That's pretty much everything. <laughs> I, You know, I don't know if I'll use it, but wow, somebody's been busy. <laughs> yeah, just it just speaks to this idea that if you take the time to find the libraries, there's some pretty good solutions out there. Pretty wild. That's cool. All right. Uh, LibSDL.org. Check it out if you're interested. Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 840, and that's the one we called Stories from CodeMash. We talked to Evan Huak and, uh, and uh, Jesse. The two different uh, little stories that we got there. And this is a comment from John Slabby, who says, I have been a casual .NET Rocks listener for the past 18 months or so, and I've always enjoyed the show. As part of my New Year's resolution to stay more connected, however, I made the commitment to listen more actively to podcasts during both legs of my 50-plus minute commute each day. Wow. As a result, I have become a podcast junkie. Congratulations. That's a lot of commuting. Holy man. 
I subscribe to a dozen or so podcasts and listen to them nonstop throughout my commute. Interestingly, my satisfaction with many other podcasts has not been nearly as high as it's been with .NET Rocks. For while they have all been excellent shows here and there, the overall quality is very uneven to the point where I stop listening to a show within 10 minutes if it doesn't click. Oh, we're sorry. This hasn't been the case with .NET Rocks, as even when the topic is not one I'm particularly interested in, the quality of the show keeps me engaged and ultimately glad that I learned something I had previously cared little about. Hmm. There you go. Which brings me to show 840. I was not the least bit interested in GPU programming, but I listened to the podcast anyway. To my surprise, the interview didn't take up the whole show and was followed by the most unexpected and interesting discussion with Jesse about improvisation and geeks. As I'm in the midst of leading a transition to Agile in a large company, the interview is especially relevant, and I took a number of small but useful tips from her on how to help tackle the enormous cultural transition, which, in my opinion, is really the hard part of Agile adoption. If the second interview had been on one of the other podcasts, I never would have stuck around long enough to hear it, so thanks, and keep up the great work. Awesome. It's cool. And, you know, we're sorry for wrecking it for those other podcasts. <laughs> kind of. Well, and, you know, the interesting part about this is should we have just made those two separate shows, too, right? We always battle over format. Yeah. I like making little vignette stories. Yeah. But they end up being very different stories, like the two we put together from Codemash here was totally different kinds of totally stories. Totally different. But, John, thanks so much for your comment. Uh, we think Jesse is awesome, too. And so is Evan. Yeah. I expect both great, great things from Evan. He's amazing. And uh, so a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 400 hardcore developer training courses authored by industry experts, MVPs, and the like, some of which, uh, many of which appear on this show. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their library. They're offering a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including a complete curriculum covering Windows 8 development. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let us welcome back to the show our good friend Brian Noyes, who has a new bio. Brian Noyes is CTO of Saliance, a software development company offering architecture as a service end-to-end product development, technology consulting, and training. Brian is a Microsoft Regional Director and MVP, a Pluralsight author, and speaker at conferences worldwide. Brian specializes in building maintainable XAML and HTML client applications, as well as the services that support them. Welcome back, Brian. Thanks. Glad to be here, as always. You know, we usually talk about Windows 8 stuff on the tablet show, and if you haven't listened to the tablet show... Um, that's at thetabletshow.com. We've got, oh, geez, over a year's worth of shows every week that we've been doing, mostly uh, on Windows 8, but all about tablets of all kinds and platform, all platforms from a .NET perspective. But we thought, you know, hey, this is a, something that we should share with our .NET Rocks listenership. So here we are. Yeah, and I think it's... Uh it makes sense because it's not just for tablets. You know, you can certainly build uh, Windows Store applications for desktop as well. And yeah. some people may may not be tuning into that show if they're only thinking mobile. That's true. And if you're yeah. building a line of business app, why would you put it in the store at all? That's an excellent question. Um, and actually outside the scope of what we're talking about <laughs> today. And we have talked about that <laughs> to an extent, quite an extent on the tablet show. Sure. No, but that was, uh, I mean, you know, that was one of the things we 
tried to decide on, on the the cone of stuff that we're going to be talking about here, whether that was in scope or not. And it was the whole side loading and and business oriented deployment was something we didn't quite get to in the guidance. So when I think of when I thought about Kona, I thought about the, there's a project on Google Spaces that's like a sort of a collaboration thing. That's not what this is, is it? No, no. Kona is just a, a code name uh, for a project from Microsoft Patterns and Practices that I've been uh, working with them as a vendor on. And uh, in you know a simplistic, overly simplistic form, people could think of it as Prism for Windows Store if they've been exposed to Prism. But at the outset, there were kind of different goals. And, uh, you know, so it's a, a fairly inaccurate way to do it, but it at least puts it in the ballpark that if, if you get what Prism is, which was a, a framework for building loosely coupled, maintainable, testable, and extensible applications with WPF and Silverlight, uh, and to a much lesser extent for Windows Phone, then most of that same phrase could be applied to what Kona is about for Windows Store apps. Yeah. The, the one thing we didn't try to tackle at all is extensibility because that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense when you're talking about a deployment mechanism that requires you to bundle everything up as an app X and you can't add things to it dynamically at runtime. So you said we. Are you working with the team? I know you're working with the team, but did you work on this particular project? Yeah. So I've been working part-time with them as a vendor, uh, going out to Redmond and, and working with them in the team room, um, working directly on the design and, and wrote some of the code as well. So Prism for WinRT makes perfect sense to me. Why is it not Prism for WinRT? Uh, part of it's political and part of it is just we don't want people coming in with the wrong expectations. Right. Prism, Prism has certain features to it. Um, and like I said, a lot of those are built around the idea of really large scale desktop client applications. Yeah things with hundreds of screens and stuff. And there's sort of a, a fundamental disconnect there when you think about a Windows Store app and you think about the scale that Prism was originally designed for. Right. Yeah. Prism was about making maintainable apps of very large scale. And it sure seems to me that in the Win8 world, tablet or not, apps are getting smaller and simpler and just more plentiful. Well, exactly. And, you know, one of the canonical situations I used to describe the use of Prism for was if you were going to build Outlook, for example, right. and you wanted to build, you know, inbox functionality and calendars and tasks, which are all sort of separable chunks of functionality, but you wanted to bring them all together into one app. And that was, you know, one of the things Prism was good at. Mm -hmm. But in a Windows 8 world, you're not supposed to do that anymore. I mean, if you look at the the apps that ship with the, the platform, you've got a separate mail app, a separate calendar app, and so on. Right. And they still talk to each other extensively. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, so you have sharing contracts as kind of the way you're supposed to integrate between applications now. Instead of bringing them together in a, a single shell application, you would have these, you know, more discrete islands of functionality, but still have them be able to integrate just through sharing data. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, this is a philosophical difference here, one way or the other. And I, I, I've sort of, I think now with deployment being relatively painless, it, there's a strong advantage to decomposing these apps into smaller pieces. Yeah, exactly, because they can have separate release cycles, and it, you know, more clearly paints the picture that they should be decoupled from one another. And Prism was, you know, very much about the decoupling side of things and making it so you could build those, you know, sort of silos of functionality, but still ship them as a single app from a user's perspective, but write them in such a way that they weren't tightly coupled to each other. And so aspects like that are still definitely part of the Kona guidance. You know, I would say Kona is definitely about 
building loosely coupled, maintainable, testable applications, just not necessarily extensible applications. Right. So there were specifically two main feature sets in Prism, the modularity and the region functionality that we just said, you know, right off the bat, we looked at and said, these just don't really make sense in a Windows Store app. How much of how much of this can we take across platforms? Uh, define across platforms. Well, okay. So, I mean, if I'm building a Windows Store app, I'm probably also building an iPad app and an Android app. Um, is is do, are there similar kind of frameworks on these other platforms that you know of? That's a good question. I haven't really seen. Uh, I don't spend barely any time in the Android space, but uh, I do spend some time in the iOS space, and there's just not a focus on business there to begin with. Um, and you certainly could build something like this on iOS. You know, there's already a degree of separation of concerns there in that everything's an MVC uh, model mm-hmm. view controller mm-hmm. kind of structure and building your your apps there. But the the MVC in in iOS is not as loosely coupled as MVVM. So Kona is, you know, first off in terms of it being cross-platform, it's designed around building XAML apps specifically. So it's not even cross-platform on the Windows, you know, WinRT, Windows Runtime, because it doesn't accommodate JavaScript and C++ apps. Right, right, right. And uh, just in case people are wondering where the name Kona comes from, is that there was a prior project by Patterns and Practices called Hilo, which uh, our friend K- uh, Kate Gregory worked on as well. And it was basically guidance on building C++ apps for Windows Store. And it was basically a uh, picture viewing and editing, image editing, you know, kind of poor man's Photoshop type app in Windows Store. Um, and so they had called that one Hilo. And so they just chose to uh, stay on the same island since it's kind of related nice. and with Kona. Well, when I first heard it, I thought it was that little statue on Gilligan's Island that was causing so much problems uh, for, <laughs> for the professor and Mary. <laughs> Let's hope it's not a negative connotation like that. Kona! Can you believe I remembered that one? Yeah, where'd that come from? I don't yeah, know. that was obscure. Gilligan's Island, good Lord. My thoughts lately have turned to, you know, when we're dealing with Windows Store apps, you know, how can I, how can I leverage what code I write, you know, for for these other platforms? And the, the most um, interesting thing I've heard of lately, and we just talked about this on the tablet show, is MVVM Cross, where there's a, a special MVVM library that you can use. And then uh, on the back end, you can use the XAML tools to take everything from the view model backwards as one code base. And then you're just essentially writing the view natively on all these different platforms. Interesting. It is oh, interesting. Check and I w- out that show. Yeah, and and I would like to. Uh, I would just like to know, you know, what um, what I'm what I'm getting if I choose to use Project Kona that I wouldn't get if I was going to go down that road. Well, uh, like I said, it is built around the idea that you've chosen XAML as the way you're going to build Windows Store apps mm-hmm. and you want to leverage the platform as much as possible. So that's another difference between Kona and Prism is that a big part of the Kona guidance is not just, you know, how to do MVVM and get the, everything separate, separable and testable and so on. It's also showing you how to integrate all the features of the of the Windows runtime and the the you know Windows 8 platform for things like sharing contracts. Well, I take it back. We didn't do sharing contracts. Settings contracts, search contracts, 
or charms as they're called, um, integrating with the navigation system, right. uh, handling things like the set settings, flyout panels, and just tying it all together the way a, you know a real business app would have to do. Yeah. So, so, so what it, are the um, take us through a typical project? Uh, you know, what, how do we uh, how do we get this? And is it a is it a new get? Do we start with new get and go from there? Good question. So it, it's not quite released yet. Um, it is the the current bits are available. We've been putting out um, somewhere around weekly drops on Codeplex. So the place people would go is it's spelled out Kona Guidance because there was a separate dead project uh, called Kona that th we might take over that URL. But for now, it's KonaGuidance.Codeplex.com. Um, and they can pull down the bits from there. And, and once the uh, release is out, which should be in the March uh, timeframe, um, then they could still get it there. But it will also go out, at least part of the bits will go out as part of the Windows SDK. So when they release a new update to the Windows SDK, the, the bits will actually be in there. But basically, it's, you know, like a lot of patterns and practices, uh, deliverables, if you will, mm. it's got several pieces to it. Um, one piece is going to be basically a big sample app, and it's a uh, product shopping and ordering type of uh, scenario that yeah. we picked. And uh, so there's, they, they call these things reference implementations, which is just kind of fancy language for big sample app with a real scenario to it. Sure. Um, so there's the, the RI, as we call it, the reference implementation is the main deliverable. And that's what we used. That was really our starting point is, you know, we basically sat down and said, let's build a real app the way a real company would. And let's only tease out reusable bits where it makes sense to do so. So we didn't sit, you know, sit down to create a library. And actually, back in the PRISM days, we did the same thing. It was more, you know, based around the idea that good frameworks are grown, not built. Mm -hmm. Right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, offering RAD controls for ASP.NET AJAX. Are you fighting with a SharePoint development assignment? Are you just fighting with SharePoint? You want to stop wasting your time mucking around and get to the real problem? Check out Telerik's RAD controls for ASP.NET AJAX. This suite offers more than 70 feature-complete controls that help you build custom web parts, as well as four ready-to-use web parts, which allow you to replace the default SharePoint editor, list view, or calendar in order to enhance the user experience across all browsers and devices. It's awesome. Check it out at Telerik.com SharePoint. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Can I can I ask you a, a particular question? Do we, do we have a sort of a base class page you know, like we have a layout yes. aware page. We we have a new base class. Yeah. So where we model. evolved, oh, yeah, where page. we evolved to to make it reusable is that we um, we've got a, a replacement for your base page uh, for the view side of things. Okay. We've got a view model base class. Okay. Um, and we actually have a replacement for the app class as well. One of the one of the recent things we did is we kind of had everything built in the the. RI, the reference implementation, um, and then I sat down to uh, to write a quick start, and I said, well, I'm going to do this like someone's sitting down to write their own app following the Kona guidance, and we realized pretty quick that, you know, there was still a lot of good stuff you could harvest and reuse, but the starting point was a lot of just kind of doing surgery in the, uh, the app XAML code yeah. behind. So we wrote, so basically the starting point would be you would 
replace your uh, base class for your app class with a Kona application. And then you would replace the page class on each of your pages with our, uh, I'm trying to think of what it's called. It'll probably change names, but it's called something like a visual state aware page as okay. opposed to layout aware page that comes out of the box. And the, the view model is also a base class. So that sort of, and where my head is going here is that sort of locks you in to, uh, to that as an MVVM um, uh, library. It, it does. And, you know, initially we tried to resist that. We tried to make it so that we could do everything sort of on the view model side. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we really struggled with quite a bit in doing so is that the, the navigation mechanisms of Windows Store apps is mm-hmm. so tightly interwoven with the page. That and the state management is too, dealing with the suspend, terminate, resume lifecycle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all very tightly woven into the page base class. And so we pretty much had to integrate with the page to kind of live nicely in that that environment. Well, I would, I, w- I bet it's going to be miles better than the sort of the sample templates that come with Visual Studio, which uh, I don't know how would you think about those sample templates, like you know the grid and the the sp- uh, split screen. Right. What do you think about those? I think they're just fine if you are, you know, if you're someone who's trying to throw together an app pretty quickly. Maybe you're a single person shop. You just want to get some out in the store. You're not real worried about long-term maintenance of the app and so on. They're a good starting point and you can just slap all your stuff in the code behind. And you know, the, the MVVM police are not going to come haul you away if you do that. But when it comes down to line of business apps that are expected to have a fairly long life cycle to them and that you're going to tend to put a little bit more functionality in than something like that. Mm. You need to focus a little more on maintainability. And so what I found with those things is they look great as a starting point because they really help you out with, you know, some of the stuff that's brand new to you as you start developing Windows Store apps, such as just basic layout stuff and styling and and all that. You you have a pretty good starting point there, especially with the grid app template. Mm -hmm. But the hard thing for me was, you know, I'm... I've got MVVM wired into my brain. Right. And so sitting down with those and trying to figure out, okay, now how do I, where do I put a view model? How do I tie it into all this and so on? I had to go through that whole thought exercise and I did that kind of in parallel working with the Kona team and I built my uh, Pluralsight course on uh, doing MVVM in Windows Store applications. Yeah, yeah I know you have. It's, it's a great course, by the way. Thank and- you. Yeah, it, it, the thing that struck me about those samples is they're almost like half MVVM, you know? They, right. They don't quite go all the way, but they have do try to separate everything as much as possible. And uh, and I, I just found it really confusing. Yeah, and so, like I said, where, where things got complicated and where we found that we really needed to kind of encapsulate things and create some nice reusable base classes was when you start tying into, you know, Terminate. Terminate is not your friend in Windows Store applications. <laughs> no, and no, I don't. I I'm also not uh, down with implementing the the pattern, you know, that they recommend, which right. is you know, save your state when you get the terminate, and you got five seconds, and blah blah blah. Well, you know, what if they just close the app? You should be well, saving your state regularly, not just see, in that event. Yeah, exactly. And so the the structure we came we came up with was you should be saving your state regularly. At a minimum, you should save your state every time there's a page navigation. Yep. Possibly even more often. 
Um, and so that was part of what we wired up in these base classes was oh. some infrastructure so that, you know, one, if you're doing MVVM, the view model is automatically notified of the navigation. So you have that opportunity to save state down in the view model where your state tends to reside mm. in an MVVM app. Yeah. Um, and also so that the the other big part in terms of participating in navigation is the place where your logic usually resides that says it's time to navigate and here's where I want to navigate is also down in the view model. So we really needed all of the navigation logic to move out of the page and into the view model. And that's what some of that base class infrastructure takes care of. Now, guys, and before we go racing off, maybe we need to talk a little bit about suspend, terminate, and resume for those who aren't already building Windows 8 apps and dealing with this. Sure. Yeah. So basically what we've got is there, there's guidance that's, you know, part of the platform to be a proper Windows Store application is that the user can leave your application by, you know, on a touch-based device, they could swipe away um, with a gesture on the screen or they could alt-tab away, uh, Windows tab away. There's, you know, various keystrokes to get them away from your app. Right. And, and as soon as your app is not the one full screen or at least partially on the screen with snapped or filled views, mm -hmm. um, your app gets suspended after a, a brief delay. And suspended basically means it's still in memory. So all your, whatever page you were on, all of its state, uh, the navigation history, all that stuff is still in memory but it doesn't have any threads. So it's basically got no CPU cycles to it. And if the user then immediately comes back to your application, then it just gets threads again and starts running. And there's really no nothing, nothing at all happens in your app. And that's one of the tricky things is you don't even know when you are resumed from suspension. Right. Nothing happens whatsoever. You just, stuff starts happening again. It's not um, really a resume at that point. It's just, you didn't have threads for a while, now you've got them again. There may be a gap in time, but that's about it. Right. I, the, the one thing, you know, that people have to get used to there is your app can't be doing anything. So no background downloads and stuff. There are some mechanisms for that in the platform, but, you know, you can't have worker threads doing stuff because they're all suspended. Right. Um, so it's not quite the same as, you know, just minimizing your app in, in Windows 7, for example, or on the desktop in Windows 8. But it's conceptually similar that, you know, resumption is almost like you came out of being min minimized. Right. But where it gets tricky is this terminate thing. And so what can happen is when once you're in that suspended state, uh, the system itself, the operating system, can decide based on memory pressure mainly. It can sit there and say, well, you know, we're kind of running out of memory here. We need some for some launching apps. Who are we going to kill? And it basically goes and looks at, you know, which, which apps have been activated most recently, which are using the most memory. There's heuristics to it that are, you know, not, uh, not to be planned on. Basically, you have to plan that as soon as your app has been suspended, it may be terminated at any time. And terminated basically means that memory is wiped clean and, and your app has no opportunity to do anything about it at that point either. And it goes down to the bottom of the sea. <laughs> now, there is a window for you to save stuff out, as Carl was alluding to. When is that window open? That is on suspension. So you basically have to assume the worst. Yeah, five seconds, go. Yeah, as soon as you get the on-suspending event, which starts at an application level and you can propagate it down from there, uh, you basically have to assume that you might be terminated while you're suspended. So that's when you have to make sure all your state is saved. And the other important thing and where it gets really tricky is the design guidelines say that to an end user, 
it should be transparent to them whether they came back into your app from a just, you know, in-memory suspend or from termination. Right. So that means you have to not only just, you know, restore what screen they were looking at. If they had three characters typed into a text box, theoretically, you got to, you know, put all three characters back there. You got to restore what was the page navigation they moved through to get to that point. You know, every aspect of the app as if they just switched away, switched back should still be there, even if it was terminated for days on end. I've had this experience playing inside the Windows Store where I started filling in some uh, credit card information and actually ran the machine out of battery and it shut down, plugged it in, walked away from it. The next day, fired it back up. And when I clicked on Windows Store, literally up to the character I was typing in was still there. Yep. Like it, it didn't go back to the browse screen or any of the things you normally expect in the store. It literally picked up exactly where I left off. Well, and you can even get more spooky than that is that, you know, one of the platform features there that you can leverage and we have some guidance on is uh, using roaming settings. So you can, any of the state in your application up to, there's some size uh, constraints on this. So it's got to be fairly small bits of data, but you can, instead of just writing them to uh, a local store to survive termination, you could be writing them into roaming settings. And if you do that, it means that if the user goes to another Windows 8 machine that they have set up with the same Windows Live account, uh, that, you know, those credit card numbers or partial character input in a text box can show up on the other end in a different machine. That is a little in the uncanny valley. Oh, and by the way, just as a useful tip for the listeners, if you have two machines on the same live account, but set with different region settings, you can't see each other's data. Don't. Ask me how I know. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that one. Well, the problem is that all you U.S. people have all your U.S. settings set to U.S. That's kind of crazy of us. What's wrong yeah. with us? Yeah, you, you guys just crazy. So, yeah, for a guy in Canada who set up one machine with the account, but he, the funny part here is even though the account set up as Canada, the region settings on the machine were still U.S. So I'm setting up this new machine and nothing's working. I'm like, I've used the same account. What the heck's going on? And it wasn't until it went into region setting. They actually was asked me to enter credit card information again, but insisted on a U.S. address. I'm like, oh, ah. go in. And I had to go to the desktop control panel, region settings, set it to Canada, and everything worked. Interesting. Fun little booby trap. Thanks for that. Yes, indeed. Yeah, Yeah, so the state management, you know, between the suspend terminate stuff and and trying to figure out what is appropriate to go in roaming settings, you know, because there's also different priorities to roaming settings. When you put things in there, there's kind of a high, medium, low thing, and it has to do with how much latency. You know, Richard, you and I have talked about caching before and how latency is your enemy there. Yeah. Well, roaming settings kind of have that same aspect because it's got to have some time to propagate to the other machines. So, you know, if you immediately jump on that other machine, fire up that app right away, data is not going to be there. But a few minutes later, it might pop in. So the spooky part on that that. then is what happens if you start, you know, so I do that same thing, hop on the other machine, go in to start entering that information, and then it syncs up. What's going to happen? That's going to be totally up to the programmer because ultimately it's coming into, you have to read and write it from the roaming settings. Yeah. It doesn't just pop into a field. Yeah. So I got to hope you're thinking, oh, the guy's already in this screen. I really shouldn't grab the roaming settings and overwrite them. Exactly. Yeah. It would be more of a startup behavior that you would, you know, go and grab the roaming settings and populate from those. 
Right. So while you guys were talking, I sent off an email to Stuart Lodge, who's the MVVM cross guy, and uh, we interviewed him on uh, the tablet show, as I was saying. And I asked him if there was like a way to use MVVM cross with Kona, you know, with any framework that requires a base class for the view model. And he basically says we can bind to any I notify property changed. Nice. So we could drop MVVM cross in there. Well, it, it appears that way, and uh, that is probably a good thing. I, you know, the who knows if it's actually possible, but that that's a good sign. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Ah, uh, it must be that happy time again. It is time to give away a Telerik DevCraft complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, and today's winner is Vamund Haga. Wow! Congratulations, Vamund. Golf clap for Golf you. Golf clap for you. And that DevCraft Complete Collection is on its way. That is everything that Telerik does in one box. A $2,000 value. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com and click on the big Get Free Stuff button. Answer a few questions, and you can be a member of the fan club, too. We have thousands of members. We give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection every show. And every December, we're giving away $5,000 worth of technology. Last year, we uh, gave away... Uh, a, a custom-built machine. Uh, Richard built it himself to a guy in Canada. Well, I actually spec'd it out to a builder near to Rob Corbett so that we could get him a proper warranty and stuff. I don't, you know, while I can fix computers just fine, shipping them back to me to get them repaired is not really a good not idea. Not a very good idea. So anyway, you spec'd it out and had it custom-built for him. That's right. We did it right for him. He's got a good machine with a two-year warranty. It's awesome. And he's got a Connect for Windows and a, a licensed copy of Gesture Pack. Brian, if you had five grand to spend on technology, what would you buy? Oh, probably a whole bunch of tablets for all my friends. <laughs> I'd like a tablet. Yeah. Well, I, I just spent four grand on the uh, MacBook Retina. Does that count? How about a MacBook Retina and a tablet? <laughs> nice. Yeah, awesome. And are you running that Retina in native resolution under Windows 8? God, no. You need a microscope, a microscope I, I to see I saw the- a guy at CodeMesh <laughs> doing this because it's like, what is it, 2566? It's incredible resolution. So he had it cranked all the way to native resolution, and he was running Studio, and you literally could open up four code windows side by side and see all the code in it if you had a microscope. Or, <laughs> yeah, or, I was going to say, you got to have some serious vision for that. <laughs> yeah, my uh, eyes just aren't that good anymore. Uh, getting back to the MVVM cross discussion, um, my brain is going to this place now where it, I think because everything from the view model back is going to have to be code, that if there's any Kona stuff that isn't just pure C sharp, we might be out of luck because it does have to be compiled on the Xamarin stack. No, it should. Uh... Should work fine. I mean, basically, our our view model base class is one of the main things it's doing is implementing the I notify property change that he said he ties into. I know that, um, but the view model is needs to be compiled with the Xamarin tools because it has to be working on iOS and Android and all that stuff. Everything from the view model back is yes, uh, cross platform. That's probably not going to work because, I mean, we were specifically trying to encapsulate into the view model base class hmm. some of these uh, state management patterns for Windows Store. Yeah. So it's it's actually accessing um, APIs that are specific to Windows Store back there in the in the view model, if I remember right. We might actually... So possibly add, with a layer of indirection, you could I, I Actually, I was going to say, we put layers of indirection everywhere for testability. Yeah. So it's probably all 
based around interfaces that you could stub out somehow. So it sounds it sounds like somebody should try it. That's what I'm thinking. And let I us know what so. happens. Also, Stuart says uh, version three uh, is underway, and it turns MVVM cross upside down. Looking for guinea pig frameworks to come visit the dark side. <laughs> I'll hook you guys up. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, we've sort of talked about what suspend, terminate, and resume does in Windows 8 and how it's kind of evil if, you know, net, yeah, for the developer anyway. What does Kona do to make it less painful? It actually makes it, uh, I, I just actually built an app last week as, you know, sort of a proving ground for the stuff we had done to try to make it easier. Um, and I, w- I, you know, commented to one of my colleagues there, Francis Chung on the team that's the uh, dev lead. I said, you know, you guys did too good of a job. That was too damn easy. Um, it basically, between the the combination of the app-based class makes it so that all you do is swap out a base class, do a couple of overrides in there to uh, to indicate any dependencies you have. And if you want to integrate a dependency injection container, that's optional, um, but that would be the place you do it. And then in the view models themselves, like I just mentioned, we have support for basically you can just put an attribute on any properties that contain state that you want to survive termination, uh, restorable state attribute, and the infrastructure takes care of it from there. And then we've also got a what's called a resu- uh, restorable state service. So if you've got something that's kind of behind the, the view model, say a repository, and you're caching some data in the repository memory and you want to make sure that survives terminate as well, then you just take a dependency on this restorable state service and read and write to it as if it's a dictionary and it automatically takes care of the persistence for you. So it makes it really easy that, you know, the page already has its own native facilities. If you're doing anything in the code behind, you can just use the hooks it has because we ultimately uh, derive from the page base class. And then in your view model, you're covered. Just slap an attribute on a property. And in anything behind the scenes, you can be covered just by taking a dependency on this restorable state service and kind of reading and writing from it. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. As it should be. Just sort of works. Yeah, exactly. That's what we were going for. IJW technology. (laughs) (laughs) Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of active reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing... But it's also got PDF support, so that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. Now, there's a bunch of other things that are in Windows 8 that I think folks just coming, you know, maybe I've come from Prisonum and I'm looking forward to Kona to get serious about building Win 8. So there, what about the other Win 8 features, stuff like Live Tile and the, the whole Charms integration? Do you deal with that as well? Yeah, we do. So the, you kind of have to split things into there's things that we deal with in the in the uh, RI, the application, which is called AW Shoppers for AdventureWorks is the data source we're using. Okay. Um, so in AW Shopper, there are 
you know, chunks of code that at a minimum demonstrate the patterns of how to use those platform features, including, like I mentioned, the search charm, settings charm, um, and, and what goes hand in hand with the settings charm is figuring out how to present those flyout panels that you may get to by going to the settings charm, or you may need to fly them out at certain times, like to log in the user if they're going to try to call a service. Um, so there's sort of demonstration of using all those concepts in the in the AW Shopper app, but then as much of that as we could that was reusable, we teased out to this reusable library that's uh, currently called Kona.infrastructure. So that's basically a reusable Windows Store class library that you can just pull in if you're going to build your own app. You just add a reference to it, and that's where the the application view and uh, view model base classes live. Uh, that's where all this restorable state infrastructure that makes it so you you know can do that really easy lives. And then it's also got stuff like for the settings charm. It's got a, a service that you can just take a dependency on, and you sort of feed it what are the views that you want to uh, show at the appropriate time, along with a moniker for them to to command it, and it integrates directly into the settings charm very nicely. Um, so that one is you know not only in the AW Shopper app, it's also in a reusable form. So you can do that same thing much more easily in your own applications. Tell me about um, uh, live tile support. That's gonna that's demonstrated in the app, but uh, I don't know that we've teased out anything reusable from that yet. Uh, they're still working, and uh, th I think the plan is to be feature complete. Uh, they're just starting a new iteration this week. Hmm. Um, and uh, It does seem like in doing live tiles that there's a bit of plumbing that you have to do. Yeah, it's, it's a little harder to make that reusable because there's the hooks, you know, first you have to go register your Windows Store application account yep. to get a key that is used to talk to the Windows push notification service. Um, so it's going to be demonstrated in there and there will be a placeholder in the code that says, you know, plug in your own key here because you actually do have to go register a Windows Store app to be able to use that mechanism. Mm. Um, but, but uh, you know, the, the hooks there of how do you define the live tile? How do you define the templates that you give to it? How do you cook, hook into the Windows push not notification service? Uh, and also how do you uh, integrate on the back end? Because part of the... AW Shopper app is also we show and, and use some web APIs, ASP.NET web APIs for mm -hmm. the backend data store. Mm -hmm. So we're also showing uh, another big piece of the guidance is uh, validation. You know, most of the samples and everything you see about Windows Store apps is all about content consumption. Right. And obviously business apps do a lot of content creation and that usually involves validating user input for which there's really zero support in the platform right now. Mm. So part of the guidance, what we did is we uh, wired up in the view models some support to do validation similar to what you would do in a WPF or Silverlight app. But the trick there is that in WPF and Silverlight, the uh, bindings in the XAML are aware of various validation mechanisms, and the bindings in Windows Store are currently not aware of any kind of validation. So we needed some XAML side hooks to be able to display errors to the user uh, so we wrote a little behavior that makes it really easy that you can just tack on to your elements in the XAML. Uh, it has a kind of predefined protocol there that it's looking for from your view model to go look for an errors collection. And then it uh, uses those to decorate the individual controls uh, when there's validation errors. So there's stuff like that that, that you get tied in and 
with the uh, web services, we also wanted to show, you know, what happens when you have server validation errors. How do you get those back to the client and associate them with the controls and so on? Hmm. So we've got web APIs that do all that stuff for the for the kind of transactional stuff that you do in the app, which is mostly entering billing and shipping and payment information for the orders uh, orders that you're placing. I, I got there because from the live tiles, typically you're going to be pushing information from a server side. You know, the app itself can be dormant. It could be terminated even uh, or, or just not running on the machine, but its live tile can still update. And so you have to have some code running somewhere that is, you know, watching information and pushing information to it. So we're, we're showing how to do that from the, the backend services as well. Mm. Well, this is very cool stuff. Let's talk about the line of business side of this per se. Sure. I think we've really only just focused on, you know, the general Win 8 things that happen in Windows 8. So what do you define as, you know, specifically line of business features in Kona? That's a great question. So, you know, we had a lot of debate about this early on. And part of it was we had to pick a scenario for the, the big sample app that we were building. Mm-hmm. Um, there's... There's kind of a disconnect there because there's traditional line of business applications in the context of desktop applications, where typically these, you know, behind the scenes in the enterprise on some employee's desktop, never to be seen by the outside world kind of thing. But when it comes to Windows Store apps, there's more and more there's business to consumer type scenarios that are still in the realm of line of business. So sure. line of business is a fuzzy term to begin with, but it's basically, you know, the, the tact we took was really a line of business app is anything where the, the people building it are a, you know, medium to large size business. And they may be building it for their internal employees, like I described for the desktop scenario, or they may be building it for, a, you know, consumer consumption. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we debated a lot about some scenarios. And the only thing, you know, honestly, I think we weren't able to push on some things that would have been very specific to line of business because we picked more of a business to consumer type scenario. If we had picked instead a could have still been a shopping app, but for let's say a uh, you know a Best Buy employee on the floor helping out customers, or some more of an internal user consumption, there were a few other scenarios for offline usage and stuff we could have pushed on a little more. Um, but the the shopping app we we had there don't let us cover it very well in the code. So mm, we right. were we're still going to cover that. One of the other deliverables of Kona, like all the. Patterns and Practice Guidance is basically a book, uh, a thin book, but it will be a book um, in PDF form. And so we're talking about those things, at least in the guidance about, you know, what are the considerations? What would you do? What are some of the choices? But we weren't able to demonstrate some of that in the in the app just because we would have had to, you know, totally fabricate a scenario in the context of a shopping app to show some things. Hey, Brian, one of the problems that I had with uh, with Windows 8 store apps was in implementing MVVM, where every class in a in a grid view, let's say every uh, item in a grid view, has a template that contains a media element, and um, trying to get access to that media element is really really difficult. Are you talking in terms of like an image URL? Yeah, no, yeah, and I'm I'm particularly talking about like you know a media element where you have a source set to a video or an audio where every Every item has a different audio file that's associated with. And um, in particular, because I cannot create those uh, 
uh, media elements programmatically. They have to be in the visual tree. And it just became a real sort of a nightmare for me because they had to be created. You know, I had to have one that I created in the template and then share that and switch around the URL and all that kind of stuff. It was really kind of a pain. Yeah, I would typically do that by, like you said, you, you have to drive it from a data template generally, um, but you could tie it in with a control like a grid view or anything that's an item source, really, or items control um, by having the, the source property on that that media element bound to some property exposed by your view model. Yeah, I tried that. It just wasn't. Out? It just was not good. Hmm. Uh, in the end, I ended up abandoning the idea. Interesting, because ultimately, you know, the the source is just a URL, which is just a chunk of data. Um, once yeah, the, the source is fine. But here's the problem, though: if you have like uh, we're listening, uh, you know, think of a .NET Rocks listener, right? And we have a media element with a, a sort of a slider that keeps the position of each. Uh, uh, you know, of each show that you're listening to. So you go to one, you play that, you go to another one. Now you have to keep the, the you you essentially unbind uh, from the current one and bind to the to the next one uh, and keep the state in between. And uh, it just seemed r- really difficult. I had problems with it. I, I'm just wondering, you know, when you have stuff that needs to be created in the visual tree, mm-hmm. that uh, I, are we talking about using a dependency injection framework for that somehow so that we can actually i see no, i don't know you Maybe can't really yeah you can't really inject into xaml very well um i've got a, a talk i do at conferences about building extensible xaml apps and the best you can do is you can inject into the code behind of the view yeah and that's your data templates and then marry them into the resource collection so that they can be found and that kind of defeats the purpose right doesn't it yeah, but I mean, for the scenario you're talking about, like, you know, synchronizing a slider bar as you move from item to item, it, you know, rings a close bell because one of the, it, it's the little things that, you know, trip you up. And so right. one of the things we spent a, a fair amount of time trying to figure out the right way to deal with was scroll position, tying back to that whole terminate, uh, evil terminate thing again. Mm-hmm. You know, one of those pieces of state that you're expected to have the app look just like the user just left it is scroll position if you've Mm -hmm. got a big horizontal scrolling view. And, you know, that's a piece of state that's buried up inside a control in the view. You know, a lot of it, like the grid view, there's a scroll bar there, but it's not surfaced to you directly in any way that you can pull the the position off. Right, and And the the data set itself sort of uh, dictates where that scroll position is, you know, so exactly. if you have more data that has come in in the meantime, your scroll position's changed. So do you, does that mean that you have to, uh, you know, go get the data again just to be able to get, I mean, and that's the kind of stuff that you see even in websites, right? Where you, you do a refresh and first all the data comes in and you wait a second and then, oh, then it brings you back to where it thinks you were. Right. And I mean, worse yet is if you're doing virtualization in those, you know, scrollable things, then you don't even really know how many items there are until you go and get them. Um, So there's, you know, there's no simple, clean way there. You know, in the end, we we got it working suitably for our application. Um, But it was a matter of some funky code that you feel dirty after you write it, you know, that we had to put in the uh, in the code behind of a view to reach down in to find a child element of the grid view to get the scroll bar to get its position, 
data bind, push that out to the view model so that it could be stored off with the rest of the state of the application and read it back in on resume kind of stuff. So it's, you know, sometimes you got to do ugly stuff to do what you need to do. So dare we even talk about side loading here? Because if it's a line of business app, it's probably going to be side loaded. Yeah, that's, uh, and that's one of those things, like I said, we don't, we didn't get to in terms of scope, um, partly because it's a complicated story. Um, yeah. You know, our friend Rocky Latka has some great blog posts he's written about this. He's got yeah, several and we just did a show with him on it as well, which will be coming okay. out real soon now over on the tablet show side. But I think if, if there's anything I took away from that conversation, it's this isn't quite baked yet. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, Microsoft, when you talk to the, the Windows team, they are slightly evasive about it. You know, there's always the reminder that, well, you know, keep in mind Windows 8 is for consumers. We'll get to a full business story later kind of thing. And so they're, you know, trying to accommodate part of the part of the um, genesis of the Kona guidance is the realization by patterns and practices that whether the platform team says, you know, this is a business release or not, businesses are going to want to try to put their apps there. Yeah, And so, you know, PNP is actually, as an organization, kind of stuck in a an uncomfortable spot in a way sometimes because they are part of Microsoft. They've got to toe the line uh, and not, you know, contradict things that the platform team is saying. Sure. Well, and I'm, I'm currently not on the inside of the Windows team in any way, which means I can say this. And Brian, you did not say this because I don't know if you're in or not. I'll bet you anything that Windows Blue is the corporate version of Windows 8 that will have all of this fixed, which is why they're not doing anything about what's in Windows 8 right now, because it's already built. It's waiting for another release. Certainly and seems that, plausible. I think Richard. that release is soon, the next few months. Boy, I hope you're right, especially about the they've fixed all of this stuff. But I, I you know, I don't know and, and couldn't say if I did kind of thing. So, yeah. Well, and I don't, and I wouldn't go so far as you say, quote, fixed all, right? That's, <laughs> yeah, that's awfully a, optimistic. That's a big I think statement. they've clearly done, when they're this evasive about a problem, they've done work on it. It's just in a place where they're not allowed to talk about it yet because it's going to come later. And I, oh, and yeah, I think definitely. that is this whole, you know, there's so many rumors flying around about blue right now that I suspect that's what's about to land. Even the name speaks to this is the corporate edition of Windows 8. Right. And I mean, the only thing counteracting that is it, it has been a short time frame since the since the release of Windows 8. Sure. So, you know, I wouldn't expect dramatic changes myself just based on that. Doesn't need to be dramatic. It need There's a handful of things here that really need to be fixed to make this a good, I'm putting on my IT hat here right now, a good corporate citizen in my network. Right. And so, you know, that that, that is not that long a list. Sideloading is clearly a big one. You know, Absolutely. Certain uh, behaviors inside of the domain, you know, that sort of stuff. You bring me those things, and I just have no hesitation left. It's like, okay, they're fine. Let's do it. Hey, uh, there's a question out on Twitter here, if I could jump on it. Um, someone's asking, what does Kona sure. mean for the prism of fe- uh, for the future of prism? Not the prism of future. Um, <laughs> asks, uh, will prism go into maintenance mode like WPF? Well, to a certain degree, yes. Uh, I know that there is no plans right now. There's a 4.5 version of Prism that is kind of already out there. It's going to be re-updated um, when Unity, uh, the the 
dependency injection container that's also by patterns and practices. Um, Unity has not been released for 4.5 yet. Um, it will be soon. So they're going to do a kind of re-release, uh, call it 4.5.1, if you will, of Prism once uh, Unity finally releases. But functionally, there's no new work going into Prism. Um, so to, to a large degree, it is in maintenance mode. Hmm. Well, there you go. Well, because this is the next thing, right? It's like Prism is perfect. I don't know that it's perfect, but it it you know suits the needs. They uh, it's one of the one of the top downloads every month on Codeplex. Yep. There's tens of thousands of companies out there using it, and it, it does what it meant to do pretty well. Awesome. Yep. Very cool. Brian, thanks very much for spending this hour with us. Uh, happy to. Thanks for having me on the show. All right. Good luck with Kona, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.